As we come to the word, let's pray once more. Sovereign God, before the world was created, you planned what that world would be and how it would be, who would inhabit it, and especially the coming of your own son, Jesus Christ. You are a great God. We can't understand your greatness. Your love is beyond knowledge. Your grace is immeasurable. And yet you've seen fit to give us a little knowledge of what can't be fully known. And that little knowledge has changed our lives, the gospel message and the words of your Bible. Today, Father, although we can't know everything, we do ask for another small increase in our knowledge by your Spirit. As even a small increase can have such a big impact on the way we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reading is what's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And today we're going to be reading or concentrating on the text from verses 8, 9, and 10. And today in verse 10 we'll come to our one of our theme verses. The series title is Come Bless the Lord living as the workmanship of God. And at last we get to the verse about God's workmanship. However, we'll start from verse 8 and we'll just um, take it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and learn from God's word. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved, in fact I'll read the whole three verses, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace you have been saved through faith. At the center of that phrase, in other words, you have been saved. And Ephesians, up to this point, has told us something of what it means to be saved. For example, in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what it means to be saved, to be blessed in the heavenly places. To be saved, in verse 4, means that we should be holy and blameless before him. In verse 5, to be adopted to God as sons through Jesus Christ. These are all aspects of what it means to be saved. They're kind of like one half of the story. It's talking about what we are saved to. We're saved to spiritual blessings. We're saved to be holy and blameless. And we are saved to be adopted as sons 
through Jesus Christ. Then down in verse 7, we come across the words, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption, it's a word which we know means to buy back. To buy, to buy back. If I remember my high school days clearly enough, we used to have a lost property box, it was at first. Now I think it was a lost property room. <clears throat> and um, high school people, would, like me, would sometimes forget items. And their parents wouldn't notice they're missing for some time. However, we were able to go to the lost property room and, and claim our items back for a certain length of time. If I remember rightly, towards the end of the year, the lost property room became like a fundraiser so that on a particular day, all the items would be put out for sale. Now, if my parents were to come along to that sale and see something which they had given to me, they couldn't just take it. They have to buy it back. And so that's part of our redemption, that we came under the ownership of somebody else, the prince of the power of the air, and God bought us back. And also it talks there in that verse about the forgiveness of trespasses, which takes us through to chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So this is saying what we have been saved from. At that time, we followed the course of this world, like maybe a fallen bird's nest floating down a stream, unable to go where the birds wanted, taken where the stream wanted to go. We followed the course of this world, unable to change our own course. We followed the prince of the power of the air, and we lived in the passions of our flesh. That's what we were. And verse 4 tells us about God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul slips the phrase in there. It's not his main theme at that time, but he slips it in. He's talked about grace several times already in chapter 1. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then down now in our own verse, verse 8. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We'll talk more about grace in a moment when we come across the words about the gift of God. Grace is what has saved us. The latter part of verse 8 says, and this is not your own doing. There's been some discussion among theologians over the years about what the word this refers to. Uh, the natural way is to take it to mean faith, which is the uh, most recent now. Say through faith and this, this faith is not your own doing. The reason why there's some discussion about it is because, as you may know, Greek has genders for its words. So it has the masculine words, feminine words, and neuter words. 
Faith is a feminine word, and this is a neuter word, so there's a mismatch. However, that doesn't decide the issue, because sometimes in ancient Greek, there was mismatches like that, or there were mismatches like that. And so it could still refer to faith. However, most commentators these days seem to take it as being the whole thing, this referring to the whole process of being saved through faith, which, of course, includes faith as part of God's grace. The other part of that phrase, this is not your own doing, is an ESV translation, which is a little unfortunate because there's nothing in the Greek text about doing. In fact, doing comes up in the next verse when it talks about works. I don't know if anybody has a translation which is not ESV, if they would like to read out the verse 8. Jason, yeah. Yes. So the phrase is, this is not from yourselves, or this is not of yourselves. Now, it's fair enough to say um, of your own doing, but that's a little bit too specific, I feel, for this verse. Um, It's not of yourselves certainly includes not doing works, but it includes much more. You may remember um, back in John chapter 1, when John was introducing his gospel. He said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's not so much what they were doing, but who they were. It's not your blood. It's not your family, not your ancestors that decides your salvation. It's not your own decisions that decide it, or somebody else. Just because you're born into a, what we call a Christian family, does not necessarily mean that you will be a Christian. So, like I was pointing out, it's not just works that's talking about here, but anything, any reason you can come up with about why God saved me. That's because my last name is Curran. No. It's because I'm a certain age from a certain country. No. No, it's not. It's by God's grace. You remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees once and the Pharisees were claiming to be fine because Abraham is our father. And Jesus, in his plain-talking way, informed them that, no, Abraham is not your father. Your father is the devil, because you do the things he does. So this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, the word gift there is really interesting. There's a, a man by the name of John Barclay, who wrote a couple of books about grace and gift, and taking um, a kind of research on those words throughout the ages, including the time when Paul wrote this letter. What did people understand by grace and gift back in those days? And he came up with six aspects of gift-giving, which uh, 
could be used to classify or to look into gift giving. Of those six, uh, two are of particular interest to us. One of the things is that when a person in those days gave gifts, they first judged the character of the person to whom they'll give the gift. Is this person going to make good use of the gift? Are they going to be reliable? Uh, that's not just back in history, that's also through to this time, even as a church now, when we think about who we're going to give our Christmas gift to, our Christmas offering, and we think, well, which charity is a worthy one, which handles the money properly, and do it. That's a, a sensible and wise thing to do. However, when it comes to our salvation, that's not what God did for us. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And we received God's great love even when we were dead in our trespasses. So God's gift-giving is in sharp contrast to that idea of gift-giving. God was not like the story of the Santa. There's a song about Santa Claus came to town or something and he made a list and checked it twice to see if people were naughty or nice. I mean, God didn't need a list. Everybody was wrong. Everybody was dead in trespasses and sins. That's the way of God's gift. Another aspect of the gift of God is that in those days, gift-giving was used to build relationship. Uh, You see that probably most clearly in the way that they did adoption, which we talked about quite some time ago. Um, They didn't adopt babies in those days. They adopted usually young men, young men whom they could check the character of, check their skills, think, can this person add to our family? Can they fit in with our family? Can they add to the reputation of our family? And uh, then they give that person the gift of adoption, being part of their family and part of their business. That also, I think, is still a way we work today. We usually give our most precious gifts to those who are closest to us, those that are in close relationship to us. The first idea about gift-giving, that it was only to worthy people, is in contrast to God's gift. But this one fits what God does. God gave to create relationship with us. God gave to maintain relationship with us. God gave to buy us back. God gave to bring us back to him for now and for eternity. So this is the gift of God. It has a purpose that we would begin to live like those who belong to him, those who are his adopted children. So that's verse 8 about the grace of God saving us and the gift of God. Verse 9 says, Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not a result of works. There's no way it could be a result of works, is there? 
I mean, you look at our works back in the early part of the chapter. Dead in sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What work there could we offer to God and say, save me because of this? No, nothing. We could offer nothing. It's plainly not a result of works. You may say, well, you know, not everybody is that bad. And you might even think about yourself. I wasn't really like that, especially if you're raised in a a moral home. But still, it's not by works. There's a good example of this, I think, about uh, Cornelius. Remember the first Gentile and his household to be saved? Acts 10 tells us in the first verse, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And when Cornelius' servants went to get Peter, they told Peter, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he had a really good reputation. He doesn't seem to tie in so much to Ephesians chapter 2 in the early part. But when Peter arrived, Peter told him these things from verse 38 of chapter 10. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. It wasn't Cornelius' good works that saved him. It was the same gospel message that saved you. He heard the gospel message about forgiveness of sins. And the Holy Spirit fell on them. As we know, the Holy Spirit falls on people and adopts them into God's family. So even Cornelius, a good man, needed grace and the gospel of God. Verse 9 carries on, so that no one may boast. Oh, we know about the boasters. There were the boasters that Jesus came across. He told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's nothing to boast about before God. Boasting in itself is not necessarily bad. It's simply acknowledging the value of something, the value of some contribution. That's why there's no boasting about our salvation. There's no contribution. (coughs) You may recall another person who liked to boast. In Daniel chapter 4, his name was Nebuchadnezzar. The king of Babylon is is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power, he said, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God had said in the Old Testament, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. And Paul said elsewhere, Let him who boasts, does not exact quote, boast in the Lord. And we can boast in him. We can say what his contribution was and is to our salvation. Handy book, Mark. So it's verse 8 about grace and being saved. It's the gift of God. Verse 9, not by our works that no one can boast. We come to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship. Paul carries on with the strong contrast against works. So it's not you doing work that results in your salvation. It's you being God's workmanship that results in your salvation. That's his message in this verse. It's not you doing work that results in your salvation. It's you being God's workmanship that results in your salvation. We are God's workmanship. I am God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. 
It all comes back to Christ Jesus. Everything's through Christ Jesus, by what Christ Jesus did. The gospel about what Christ Jesus did was preached to Cornelius, and Cornelius and his household were saved. There's no workmanship in our lives. None of God's workmanship in our lives takes place outside of Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works. So although works can't save us, there is a purpose here of God. We are created for a purpose. Your life has a purpose. Chapter 1 told us that our purpose is to be holy and blameless before him. It also said that our purpose is to be part of his plan in the fullness of time where God unites all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Earlier, chapter 2 told us so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. These are all purposes of God. And one more, we are created for good works. Well, later in Ephesians, Paul will go into quite a bit more detail about what these good works are. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. However, at the rate at which I'm moving through Ephesians, that may be a number of years down the track. So I think we'll just look at a few things to remind us what sort of works he might have in mind. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. It's a word which means to put up with each other. You only put up with somebody if they're irritating you, right? So amongst ourselves there will be those that sometimes irritate us. And the good work is to put up with that person. They will change eventually. And me too. Later in chapter 4, Paul's talking about the, the body of Christ. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Your good work can be to anybody, but Paul's focus is on your good work to each other and building up the body of Christ. And that is an important part of your good works. Uh, Verse 28 of the same chapter, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Doing honest work is a good work. Sharing with people in need is a good work. And you can go on. Um, Husbands, love your wives. That's a good work. And over in chapter 6, verse 18, as Paul comes to a close, he says, praying, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is a good work, a good work for which you have been created in Christ Jesus. The next phrase in verse 10, 
may come as a bit of a surprise. These good works, it says, God prepared beforehand. Usually when the Bible says something like God prepared beforehand, it's talking before creation. Let's think of that. God, before creation, prepared good works for you who are created in Christ Jesus to do, to walk. See, God not only prepared you by creating you in Christ Jesus, but he's also prepared works for you to do. God is a meticulous planner. You can see his details and creations and the, and the snowflakes and the petals of the flowers in our own human body. Very keen on detail. Uh, you may remember last week Jason spoke on the passage of Exodus 14. And that was about <coughs> the children of Israel. Now, God had a, a work for Moses. The general work was to bring the people of Israel out from slavery in Egypt. But within that general work, he had specific things for Moses to do. <clears throat> when they came to the Red Sea, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. That was a specific task which God had planned beforehand for Moses to do. Remember how Jason told us that there was a shorter way or a better way for them to go, but God took them that way? It was planned. Um, even before that, there was a, a man who had a, a special work to do. His name was Noah. and His work was to build an ark and to save some of mankind. Now, later on, we come across um, David, the king. He had a task before he was king. He was to fight a giant named Goliath. Pre-planned, specific task for David from God. David also wanted to have another task, but God didn't give that one to him. That was to build the temple. He said, no, that's not for you to do. That's for your son Solomon to do. And David did as much as he could to help the preparations. Um, then we read about Paul in the New Testament. Well, he was made by God's grace. He was made an apostle to the Gentiles. That's a work that God specifically had for Paul. And within that general work, he had details of where Paul could go. No, don't go there have this dream about a man from Macedonia. Yeah, go there. Specific things for him to do. But the greatest task, of course, for God's special beloved son was planned well before creation, for he was slain from before the foundation of the world. His task, oh, my Lord, his task was to die on a cross, which is the reason... We are saved. Oh, yes. Excuse me. What a task. What a task. What a work. Prepared for him before the foundation of the world. Yes, 
God has prepared works for you. Uh, you should walk in them. Back in verse 1 it says that you walked in sins and trespasses. That was your habit. We've got a new habit now. It's walking in the good works which God has prepared beforehand. It means walking in wisdom. It doesn't necessarily mean doing every opportunity that comes your way. It doesn't mean responding to every charity that asks you for money at Christmas time. It does involve wisdom. But God, and this is kind of exciting, for you, has works he wants you to do. You may just walk along life this week and be doing good here and there and not really really think about it. But when you look back, God has prepared works for you to do beforehand. And God succeeds. Philippians 1.6, well-known verse. I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. God works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's pray. Hmm. What a generous gift-giving God you are. You gave your most precious gift, Jesus, your son. He gave all he had, his life, for our sake. So that you could have a people on display for eternity. A people on display to show your grace. To say, that's what those people were like, doing those sorts of things. Now look at what they're like. They're doing these sorts of things. And throughout eternity, we will be doing good works, kindnesses, and loving to one another. You have changed us, Father. You've given us an eternity to look forward to. Please help us this week to go forward and walk. Walk in good works. In Jesus' name, amen.